Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, as always, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today we have a very special guest all the way from Wheaton College, Dr. Vincent Bacote. I got it right? Uh, some relatives do pronounce it that way, yes. Oh. <laughs> I say Bacote. Bacote, I'm sorry. It's okay. I have many relatives who would say that's exactly how you pronounce it. <laughs> so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I've been at Wheaton College for 16 years. I teach in our Bible, it's really Bible, Biblical and Theological Studies Department. I teach theology in that department, and I'm also the director of our Center for Applied Christian Ethics. Center for Applied Christian Ethics is uh, a sort of like an institute, not a place that people can come to study, but, but we're a uh, center who exists to help facilitate moral discernment on the campus and broader community Mm -hmm. and i've been directing that since fall of 2007 Mm -hmm. um i've been married 20 years to my lovely wife shelly i have two daughters laurel and juliana Mm -hmm. 13 and uh and i if if one were to ask what is the most uh important thing for me it's i would say it's uh the uh, the link between faith and life is the most important thing because I think there is often uh, people who are good at talking about what we ought to be doing and there are other people who are good at talking about what we ought to be thinking or believing but uh, the bridge between those I think sometimes needs to be made or at one level you could even argue that the world we live in is a world where um, that bridge needs to be reestablished. Mm-hmm. The the we've been talking about that a, a lot. The link between orthodoxy and or, orthopraxy, and yes. the disconnect it seems in so many Christian circles. Yes, exactly. It's, oh. it's a disconnect, I think, because um, it could be disposition is part of it, but in, in terms of because some people they're more heady, mm-hmm. and some people are more practical. But I think it's also because sometimes the words like theology and doctrine have a bad reputation. Mm-hmm. And they have a bad reputation because people think if you say the word doctrine, all of a sudden they won't be able to stay awake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's true that there are books you can find in the library that if you start reading them, you'll ask, why are they doing this to me? Mm-hmm. And I just, I can't, you might be saying again and again. But I think if we recognize that doctrine and theology, however you want to understand those terms or or whether you use them interchangeably, that those terms are about just teaching the faith. And the faith isn't just about ideas. It's about life, not just about uh, beliefs that are an exercise in abstractions. Mm -hmm. I think that's so good um, for us to understand the, the necessity between both the the necessity for both in the life of a believer um yes think about it this way did jesus come just so that people would just think about the right things 
I don't think he did. No. <laughs> Nor did he come just so the people would do stuff, and somehow the stuff that they did had no connection to any actual beliefs either. Mm-hmm. So it's the the link between belief and practice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, should be a natural one. Mm-hmm. But all you need to do is look at seminary curricula, for example, and you can see that uh, if it was a natural one, uh, it hasn't been so natural in recent decades. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Um, before we started recording, we started talking a little bit about um, why the G3 project was created and the fact that there isn't a lot of African-American apologists. What would you say would be the reason for that? Reason number one is the way that if you call it a discipline of apologetics in and certainly that exists in evangelicalism, <clears throat> it emerges in response to a lot of the critiques mm-hmm. uh, to, of the faith that come from, you know, the Enlightenment or post-Enlightenment ways of thinking about the Bible and, and faith. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think the a lot of the people who are doing that uh, are people who were educated in institutions that weren't exactly inviting African-Americans to participate. Mm-hmm. And that includes uh, institutions we would now call evangelical or or on the way to being evangelical institutions. They weren't exactly educating, you know, droves of African-Americans. Mm-hmm. So the conversation that people are having about apologetics, in some ways, uh, even though they're questions that are perennial at one level, um, they were a particular conversation among uh, you know, a, a, a certain, you know, group of people, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think part of it is also, if you think about the way things have uh, developed in this not easy to find thing, to define thing called the black church, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the fault lines are not the same as they are in evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, the while there may be some questions that are similar questions, the ways of addressing those questions uh, aren't the same necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what, what's important in terms of training ministers hasn't been, you know, contending with, you know, post-modernity or something like that, uh, or, or, or even dealing with uh, why you would respond certain ways to higher biblical criticism or, or, or certain things from the, the influence, the influence modern liberalism that come out of the enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Those haven't been the questions. So, so I think that's also another reason because that it, it's, it's again, a different conversation. Mm-hmm. That's mean that, that, okay, so African-Americans don't need to care about these things. This would be a mistake. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's important just to recognize that we're not dealing with identical trajectories. Mm-hmm. And those identical trajectories, I think, play a role, uh, play a big role in why you don't have those. Last thing, uh, when it, if you think about the way that most African-Americans are formed in the church and think about um, vocations, 
that are in some way related to what I'll call full-time Christian service. Mm-hmm. What is atypical is for people to be steered toward what I do. Mm-hmm. People are, are largely steered toward some kind of vocation that's associated with the local church, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't necessarily bad, except for the fact that not everybody who had, who is oriented towards uh, a we call full time Christian service, they're not all oriented towards being pastors. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are some people they're they're definitely more scholarly types. They're they they, they they're not wired to be pastors they're more wired to be scholars and teachers and um that pathway um isn't one that is um it's not that it's inaccessible it's mm-hmm. just that it's just not the way that people are usually uh encouraged to it's not a path people are encouraged to pursue mm-hmm. uh so in fact still you know, I've, I've been teaching a week for 16 years and, you know, if I go into an African-American church context, people aren't always exactly sure about what it is I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they go, okay, so now do you pastor a church? Do you dot, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And that, okay, I preach, I'm ordained, I'm not, a, a, I do not have my own congregation. I serve congregations. But I don't have a congregation. Mm -hmm. I teach at a college, and I teach theology to students. These students to whom I'm teaching this, I'm not teaching. I'm not preparing ministers. I'm not at a seminary. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I do as a theology professor at a Christian liberal arts institution, I think it's still not something that uh, is readily grasped. And it's not there's a resistance to it. It's just not been what's typically thought of as a vocation for full-time Christian service. That's very true. And I think, too, one of the emphasis of classical apologetics is to kind of defend the existence of God. And in the African-American community, the idea that God exists is a very strong concept. Yes. So <laughs> yes. we we don't need that kind of argument in most circles. Now there is a sect of that's growing of, of, I believe younger people that are questioning the existence of God in the African American community. But historically that wasn't our issue. Right. And I think the, the reasons why you have that happening are Mm -hmm. a combination of, um, people getting educated and becoming middle-class and, or or upper middle-class or, or upper class. Mm Mm-hmm. And as they are educated and develop in class, et cetera, and if they grow up in, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm now going to be in, engaging in stereotypes here. Okay. <laughs> so, so okay. And so you, if anyone hearing this, you know, there's like a light flashing because I use the word stereotype. Okay, here, here it comes. <laughs> but if they go to what some would call a, their, their traditional black church that they grew up in, mm-hmm. they don't find the preaching to be as intellectually stimulating mm-hmm. um, or that there's enough variety. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
even if they see that it somehow touches them emotionally and maybe addresses some kinds of needs that they have, they don't see the church addressing a larger range of, of, of concerns that they think ought to be addressed. Uh, or, or they're not addressed the way that they think they should be addressed from a intellectual way that's also biblical and theological. So they, they don't see how the, the, they're being shown that the Bible speaks to those things. Mm-hmm. And um, so they they wonder, okay, is this just what the deal is? And of course, mm-hmm. there are some as they become educated and and for some have a kind of ethnic conscious raise, raising experience um they wonder whether there is um you know uh, anything good in this faith that they go hey this is this was connected to slave masters and and they and they deal with the very real question about having christianity christian having the christian faith when the Christian faith was communicated by people that were also trafficking in human persons. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a real problem mm-hmm. for some people. And they're not necessarily given really good answers. Mm-hmm. So they go for something that they think might be more authentic to some notion of what blackness is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, have you ever seen a website called Slave Sermons? Mm-mm. I've never yeah. seen that. That's all I say. It's, it's not uh, very affirming of Christianity, uh, but it's 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 basically saying you know it's a way for people to be you know ha- having your mind enslaved by this Christianity type of thing. Mm-hmm. But African American guy who's uh, uh, I, it might it might just be a YouTube channel actually, but it's, it'll be worth checking out. I'll definitely check it out, and I know since when we do have when younger people. Obviously, they are they're they're more educated than their parents, um, just because of the progression of African Americans in the U.S. Um, they meet more people in college. You meet Muslims, and in college, you meet people with all different kinds of faiths: Hindu, Buddhist, and you start questioning um, your experience, right. and you start being more open, and then you start looking at your idea of exclusivity in Christianity and, you know, really wondering is our, is the truth of the gospel, the only truth that exists. Right. Um, which leads us to today's topic of absolute truth. Um, and I, I was just talking to somebody the other day, a friend of mine and, um, his, his, his upbringing and then him going to a metro area, he said has really expanded his, his viewpoint. Cause in the right. South, we're still in the Bible belt, you know, there yes. are still things that we just accept or we think is true. But the further you go up North, um, the more open people are, um, right. if you go to the Northwest or the Northeast, it's like being in Europe <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of the worldview. Mm-hmm. And so people are, you start talking to people that grew up in a, um, just say a, a Muslim household and they've grown up with that all their life. And that's what they deem is true. And that's their, in a sense, exclusive truth. Um, because most religions have an exclusive claim to truth. Um, how do we deal with that? Um, 
in, as Christians? How do we how do we kind of deal with this idea of a because the common view in celebrity say it all the time, my truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and my thing is, well, how can everybody's truth be the truth? Because truth in itself is an <laughs> exclusive right. claim. Um, right. I, I'm sh- sure you hear it in Chicago a lot. Yes. Well, it's but it, it's it's all over on television, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think there are a few things that are, are part part of it is is that so you know what you describe is we are in a more pluralistic society. Mm-hmm. And in this more pluralistic society, people encounter a broader range of worldviews. Mm-hmm. And th- this is part of also what happens because of, you know, wh- whether it's regarded as positive or negative, because of this thing called globalization. Mm-hmm. And, and because of this uh, globalization, uh, the, the effects of globalization ideas flow all over the place. You know, the communications revolution has a lot to do with that as well. Mm-hmm. And so people can more readily encounter difference uh, as, as opposed to the scenario of the person that grew up in a small town and barely left there their entire life. Well, now even if that person is, barely leaves that town, the world still comes to them uh, if they... If they if if they're willing to put their antenna up, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so in that world with with this plurality, people of course ask, well, there are all these people who are they have ideas and they were taught things. And how do I discern what's real and what's not real and who's right? And I think one of the reasons for people saying, you know, your truth uh, and my truth is because they don't want to be oppressive to others. Mm-hmm. So, and, and of course, there, there really should be an asterisk besides the phrase, your truth or my truth. Because usually what people really mean by that is, your truth or my truth, as long as we both agree that neither of us is going to kill the other person. <laughs> I mean, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. As long as, as long as, because because if my truth means that, okay, I'm a guy, right? Okay, if my truth is, and this is not Vincent Bacon talking. This is hypothetical person talking. Hypothetical person talking. This is my truth. If my truth includes pillaging and raping, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't think people would say it's okay that that's my truth. Mm-hmm. Because my truth being that the way the world operates is that I'm a very selfish person who takes whatever he wants when he wants it, then my truth includes invading the space and property of others all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, um, nobody means that mm-hmm. when they say my truth, or maybe some people do, but they don't. They wouldn't admit it publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So that, that's why I think there's an asterisk by it. It's kind of a uh, a truce about ultimate things and kind of agreeing to disagree as long as people agree, decide to live together. Mm-hmm. I think it's also a result of what happens with the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, uh, however, it, it's a complicated thing. If you say the Enlightenment, what is it? But here's one version of it. One version of the Enlightenment is that people, i.e. certain European people, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> certain European people, starting with Descartes, mm-hmm. uh, say, uh, okay, 
how do I know that I can doubt what, what, what I can't doubt the one thing I can be sure of? How can I have some certain knowledge? And the, and that was happening in a time where people are having wars, and these wars have a lot to do with religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so part of what was part of the way of getting there? Well, what's the one thing I can't doubt? I can't doubt that there's a me. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. so you know what's called the turn to the subject. So you turn to the subject. When you're turning to the subject, the person, then what you're doing is you're making the person the arbiter mm-hmm. of of reality. Mm-hmm. And, and initially, even though if you actually look at these Enlightenment thinkers, they didn't all agree with each other about this stuff. But the way the story is told is in the Enlightenment, uh, people decided or discovered that they could have a kind of objective, rational mind, and that this was how they would, and that this is how you know what truth is by the use of the, the, the reason of the person. Why? Because the reasoning person is the source of authority, not anything external to the reasoning person. What happens with that, aside from the fact that it doesn't really deliver, um, and you get things like world wars out of it. But, <laughs> Uh, but, but but what also happens, though, and, wh- and why you get and part of how you get postmodernity is that that turn to the subject gets radicalized in the sense that rather than saying that there's a common rationality to every person, it's a, it becomes you know kind of either a tribal rationality group you know what we think mm-hmm. how we see the world right because of this with this group of subjects how they see reality. Or, or ultimately radicalized to what each person sees. So each person is sort of like their own universe of reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so, uh, which, which I want, well, if you, think, if, you, if you turn to the subject as the source of uh, authority, you know, autonomous subject, right, self-ruled subject, mm-hmm. um, if, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that you move from the idea of a common rationality to each sort of little, everybody has their own little fiefdom of rationality. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's what you believe, uh, then you you say, well, my truth, your truth, etc. Why? Because it's how I see things. Mm-hmm. And how I see things is basically what determines what's real or, or what's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and the difficulty with that, of course, is that you can't live in a world where everybody really believes that all the way down. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is think about something like, uh, you know, a four-way stop. Does everybody, if everybody's rationality is not the same, does stop mean the same thing to everybody? Okay, there's mm-hmm. <laughs> a red, or, or if it's a red sign, and you, and you, and and but you know, red signs, you're taught that that means stop, right? Well, mm-hmm. if everybody has different rationalities, four different people are coming to the stop sign, are all four of them going to interpret that sign as the, as meaning the same thing, mm-hmm. or are you know is one of them going to interpret it as stop and the other three say no that's all i've i've always thought that meant something else because that's how i see it mm-hmm. well you, 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 you'll get collisions mm-hmm. right so the point is that you can't live out this notion of my truth all the way down mm-hmm. um there is a flip side of it that I do think is important to recognize, and that is that the way that people understand the world 
doesn't happen in some pure crystal clear objective you know lens either mm-hmm. uh, people have a lens that is uh to use the to continue the lens metaphor the prescription is ground so to speak so they see things a certain way the prescription is ground by their parents you just mentioned the south you know their region their education um Various family experiences. You know, did you come from a broken home? Did you not come from a broken home? Do you have siblings? Do you not have siblings? Um, you know, all those types of things play a role mm-hmm. in how people see the world, and they're not—they're not enslaved to all that, all that material that makes up their context and that grinds that lens. But it does play a role in how people see things. Mm-hmm. So I think part of what my truth gets right is that um, pure objectivity is a myth, mm-hmm. and that uh, you know that is uh, an aspiration that can't be reached. I mean, it, it's easy to talk about, but it's not real. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's a very long answer. <laughs> I think it's good because it helps see the both and concept in it. Um, cause sometimes we like the either or, yes. uh, but it's uh, both seeing both sides of the coin and understanding what people are really trying to articulate is their experiences yeah. are different. And maybe right. we could use my experience, your experience versus my truth, your truth. Um, yeah. but <laughs> and, and, and just the fact that, okay, if we're going to live together, work together, etc. um, we just need to have more conversations so that we actually work toward agreement rather than one of us imposing something on the other. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think that's, that's, that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. I guess one other thing, a side part of that is, is I think most people want to be understood by others. Mm-hmm. And if someone continually misunderstands you, and sometimes, and perhaps willfully misunderstand you, then um, you can either say, I'm out of <laughs> this conversation, or you can uh, issue invitations to actual conversation. Mm-hmm. Say, if we have these actual conversations, we might both learn something. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think, and to understanding, because... Um, I was talking to a friend of mine and they said one of the things that I've been critically thinking through is when we talk about objective truth Mm -hmm. and Christianity, we don't all start at the same playing field. Mm -hmm. So me personally, I grew up in a two parent home. Uh, Both my parents were strong Christians, so I saw it modeled for me. My friend, on the other hand, grew up in a broken home. Um, Still, his mother was Christian, but we're starting from two different starting points. So I grew up middle class. He grew up and in more of a a, a, in more of an impoverished situation. Sure. So he's like, "Will God hold us to the same standard if we didn't start at the same um, playing field?" Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think what he meant by that is. And your answer was, (laughs) I think what he meant by that is for me, it may take me, it may be a little easier for me to accept certain things about God 
then him. So will God be gracious to him if he doesn't get it as quick as somebody else who had a head start? Right. You know, what's interesting about a question like that is, um, on the one hand, it it asks a legitimate question, and and it, it it's it's a bit like a plea for mercy mm-hmm. um, and for for grace. Um, I think it is true that, and I, and I wonder about it in terms of his, his experience if he's been in. Like, church environments where people act like, um, what do you mean you don't know this? What do you mean you don't understand this? What do you mean you don't believe God is loving and caring and merciful? What do you mean you don't like people calling God a loving father? (laughs) Things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, uh, Because sometimes people, because of their experience, they're like, you use the word father, okay? I don't have good connotations for that. You need to help me Mm -hmm. understand why a word like father shouldn't be offensive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, or can somebody help me to know whether or not God actually cares about my circumstances because my life was rough? Mm-hmm. And if a person doesn't believe that God cares about those things, they're like, why should I care? Why, why would I want to be in a relationship with a God who doesn't care about me? Mm-hmm. Doesn't care about my circumstances? So I, I think it, it, it gets at not just the question about what is truth or not truth, but also the fact that. We talk about what the content of truth is. If somebody said, okay, is there a God or not? That's not really just the, the only question. The question is, okay, so you say there is a God. Well, what about him? Mm-hmm. Is this God that you that, that you say is there? Mm-hmm. Is this God that is there, one, who cares about people that have had it rough? Mm-hmm. Or does he say, I'm sorry, um, I don't take into account... Uh, your circumstances. I ignore those things, and you either just get it right the first time, or you're out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, so, so it, it, it gets to the point. I get to the dimension of it where we have to think about. Well, when we talk about there being truth, we have to be sh- sure that we are good communicators of that truth. The mm-hmm. partial communicators of that truth, then we can't be too surprised when some people say, "Okay, it's time for me to take a hiatus or or vacation or just an ex an exodus mm-hmm. from this because uh, I I can't deal with um, a God that uh, doesn't care about the suffering of other people." Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because they never, they, maybe they've never heard that mm-hmm. and maybe they've never seen all of the anguish expressed in the Psalms, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, that it, it gets to that point. Uh, also, I sometimes wonder when I hear about people, you know, stepping away or, you, you know, there's all the talk now about the nuns and the duns and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, those that, that categorize as the duns aren't people that necessarily stop believing certain things. They've just gotten to a place where uh, they felt like for some reason the church either did not appreciate them or wasn't going to really, um, you know, for all the verbiage that they may have heard, that they weren't going to be invited to actually participate in ministry, etc. Uh, their voices weren't going to be taken seriously, all that type of stuff. 
they have those kinds of experiences, and those experiences convey to them the idea that, all right, this is what this is about. Mm-hmm. All this commitment to truth, it means that um, only some people matter and other people don't. Mm-hmm. Then what is that telling me about what those people think truth is? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it gets at the point, or gets us to the point of recognizing that truth isn't just about whether we are affirming some reality out there, certain kinds of facts, etc. But also, I mean, how are those things embodied? How are those things practiced? Mm-hmm. This goes back to the orthodoxy, orthopraxy thing. Is I mean, is, is faith a thing that is lived or not? Uh, if it is lived in certain ways or if it is lived in deficient ways, those things make a difference. Because mm-hmm. if, if it doesn't infiltrate your day-to-day walk, then people look at what you say, your head knowledge with disdain. Like, <laughs> yes. it, it, it almost become a, a Pharisee of sorts. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. N- and the tricky thing about that is the point isn't that anyone should, you, if you because you're not perfect. I don't, I don't care what you say, but you know the, the sort of uh, immediate hypocrisy charge. But um, it's neither that people people shouldn't strive at all to be mm-hmm. holy, people, uh, but nor is it that um, you know that that people shouldn't. Well, I put this way: it's more like how do people operate? in a recognition of the fact that they are on a journey of transformation. Mm-hmm. To and do they operate that way even while they express their conviction strongly? Or do they, op- or do they express their conviction strongly and meanwhile um, the way they live is so opposite mm-hmm. to it, either by being just mean people, for example, uh, or by being sort of like the, uh, the proverbial person that, uh, you know, shouts on Sunday and then lives like the devil the rest of the week, that kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those types of, of uh, dissonance between uh, proclamation and action create problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the balance in that is giving people mercy um, on on both sides to say, well, you know, I think one of the one of the things I've been thinking through and that's been is very popular in the in the Christian news is the hypocrisy of white conservative evangelicals mm-hmm. and their um, orthodoxy not matching their orthopraxy in, in relationship into considering the least and those sure. things that affect the systematic injustices that affect the African-American community. And so on one end, I'm angered by it. But on the other end, I have to consider the hypocrisy in my own life in some things. Mm -hmm. So it causes me not to push back and challenge them on those things, but to give grace. That's the balance. It's like, okay, in some areas, I still have um, areas of hypocrisy, you know, in, in, in some spaces. And then... So when I see theirs, I'm, I challenge them just like, uh, Paul challenges Peter mm-hmm. in Galatians. But on the other hand, I give them grace for a change to happen. 
Right, exactly, exactly, which which is uh, a delicate balance. Mm-hmm. We, we actually just had on campus last week here at Wheaton three people from the Ferguson Commission, Ferguson, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that one of the members talked about was an African-American woman named Felicia Pulliam. And she said one of the things that she learned is that there are a lot of people, I mean, they really do not understand the experience of African-Americans at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, I mean they, they, they really don't believe that somebody might get pulled over routinely for driving while black, for example, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or that people have consistently had, uh, you know, hostile experiences with uh, the police or that people are in school systems, you know, schools that don't have that many books, you know, things like this. Mm-hmm. And, and what she discovered was, what she put it was, she discovered there are a lot of people that are sincerely oblivious by which she means they have no malice and and they really just don't know what the day-to-day experience is of a lot of African Americans and when they discover it then all of a sudden um, things do begin to change actually and um, it's easy for, for any of us to say I don't understand how you couldn't see this. Well, uh, it's it's true. There are a lot of things that people do not see unless they are helped to see them. And when when we're and, and, and while helping to see that helping them to see certain things, we do have to, as you said, have uh, tremendous mercy. Which, of course, is also a challenge because some people. Are thinking you're telling me I've got to do all the forgiving over here? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this can't be happening. <laughs> and it's like, no, you, you, you yes. In, in this instance, uh, you may have more forgiving to do than someone else, and that's just the way it goes. It's not, it's not about you know equal opportunity forgiveness here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's by virtue of if you're a Christian and you're offended, and there's this particular offense, um, we. The command is for us to forgive, and of course, it's not cheap forgiveness. It's but it's, it's genuine forgiveness, which is which isn't which isn't pretending that there aren't wrongs, etc. But uh, but it is still forgiveness, um, and and it, it, you know, and it's forgiveness that that certainly requires God's grace for us to um, continually forgive rather than. Uh, say, all right, the well of forgiveness is dried up. Because no Christian should ever say that, especially when we think about, you know, (laughs) and why are we Christian? (laughs) And how did this happen? Mm -hmm. And who is God? And how is God treating us, etc.? We we always need to kind of go back to that uh, in those moments when it's harder to forgive. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's a call to be like Christ. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> yep. The Christian yeah. that if he could suffer for our sins and take the penalty when he had no fault in the matter and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Looking at the cross, it challenges us to give grace um, right. to people that do it on purpose and people who don't have yeah. no idea. Right. Um, and so I think that's helpful. Uh, I know the time is, uh, we've, I think, gone over our time, but I do want to ask, um, okay. 
how would you define truth? And if I know this isn't the quickest answer, uh, how would you define truth? And is truth only found in scripture? Okay. I'll take the last part first. Okay. <clears throat> because I believe in general revelation, truth is not only found in scripture. I mm-hmm. think Paul's making that case pretty strongly in Romans 1. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth that is found through general revelation is uh, best interpreted when we have our eyes illumined by special revelation. Mm-hmm. And, and that, well, not just special revelation, but also people who are made alive by the Spirit being able to have the the capacity to uh, interpret both special and general revelation uh, with greater clarity. Um, but but we do need to be seeking God in order to do that. So so that is answering the second question. The first question, uh, I guess the, the best way I put would put it to say, truth is. Um, whatever we would call reality in the world that God has made. Mm-hmm. And this reality that is that exists in the, in the world that God has made, whether it has to do with describing things or thinking things or behaving in certain ways, it is determined by uh, what, 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 what God has uh, designed or planned, let's put it that way. Uh, so, um, it's, it's sometimes people talk about what's called a correspondence theory of truth that there, which means that there's some reality out there and that truth is whatever corresponds to that reality out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's part of it, but I think it's also more complicated because you have to take into account what truth looks like in context. So truth isn't just what is said, but it's also what is lived out Mm -hmm. so when we take that into account uh, we have to think about uh the the multifaceted ways that truth can be uh expressed um like like a person looking through a kaleidoscope Mm -hmm. so so i think we have to take that uh complex that dimension of complexity into account as well so that's kind of how i would answer it Mm mm-hmm well, I think that's definitely helpful. Um, and I think this has been a rich conversation that's going to help a lot of our listeners. Um, what would be any, do you have any last words? Would you um, like to highlight your website and also oh, any resources, <laughs> any resources that you would recommend for people who want to um, study this further? Right. Uh, so, uh, my website is www.vincentbaycoat.com. Um, and uh, uh, in terms of, uh, the, it, it, there's so many different topics, but I, I think, but particularly if people are thinking about the apologetic side of things, I mean, you do have your usual suspects, right? So, <laughs> William Lane Craig, Robbie Zacharias. Um, I don't know if you, if, are you familiar with Peter Kreeft? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's he's another person that I think is um, uh, helpful. Uh, and really, I think he's helpful is because uh, uh, I think some, sometimes the way he he communicates it in a way that's a, that may be more accessible sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think he, his work uh, can be helpful. Um, so I mean, I, I think those are sort of the three names that, that that usually come to mind if somebody asks me about apologetic things. They're who, who 
I direct people towards. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people who are doing interesting things around some of the topics that we discuss, but I think, I think we'll, we'll stick with those three. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome. Thank you so much uh, for this interview. I really appreciate it. Glad to participate. I hope it helps people. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it